mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm going to be your host today, Mike Brazier, and we have another opportunity to visit with uh, with a graduate student out there across North America that's helping us conduct some important research affecting our waterfowl conservation, our waterfowl management. Today's guest is Maddie Lohman, a PhD student from the University of Nevada, Reno, and I had the great fortune of spending some time with Maddie uh, earlier this summer up on the Yukon I'm not going to get this right. Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge, right there on the edge of the Bering Sea. Maddie is, rejo- is joining us remotely here. And so, Maddie, welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. It's great to catch up with you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. We're going to uh, we're gonna get to a little bit of a discussion on, on our just unforgettable experience there on the on the YK Delta uh, later on. But, but right now, I just want to visit a bit about who you are and, and how we met and when we first met and get you to talk about some of uh, kind of how you came to do research on on waterfowl because uh, you're you're like many of the students that it seems like we have out there now you are incredibly smart you are highly quantitatively inclined you describe yourself as a quantitative ecologist not necessarily a duck biologist but you're a quantitative ecologist that's doing duck research and so in my in my eyes and mind you're you're a duck researcher. I hope you're okay with that. Oh, definitely. <laughs> uh, but I want to talk a little bit about that. So in terms of your background, I will say the first time that I met you, uh, you were one of the most impressive undergraduates that I'd ever come across. And that, uh, come across, and that was at the North American Duck Symposium in, in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Was that 2019? I think so. Yeah. That, it was the summer right before I started grad school. So I think, yeah, 2019. Yeah, I think it was that. Yeah, it was right before the whole global pandemic uh, and all that kind of stuff. And so you were an undergraduate that was delivering a plenary, you know, one of the introductory presentations in front of all the participants, all the attendees, and you just knocked it completely out of the park, so much so that I came up to you afterwards, had to find you and just compliment you on the wonderful job that you did. How did you get roped into that? Oh, geez. Well, thank you so much for uh, being so nice about it. I was shaken in my shoes. I was so scared. Um, I got roped into it from a former and current mentor of mine, Thomas Rickey, um, who put together the plenary session. He knew I was very interested in especially spatial ecology, looking at things like how do populations vary across really broad landscapes. And he was putting together this plenary about changing demographic rates and how harvest kind of factors into that. And he felt like it'd be a really good start to my graduate career to come up and do that. 
I was not told what a plenary was. <laughs> and he didn't, he certainly didn't explain that to you at the time, right? Oh, no. <laughs> and like, you know, we practiced for like weeks and weeks and weeks, but I never caught on like this was more than just like a conference talk. But yeah, just a mentor wrote me in and it was kind of the research that would start off my uh, graduate research. So it was really exciting. Well, that, that's awesome. And and I'm I'm glad Thomas did that. Thomas was actually there with us on, uh, on, on the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge. And it was great to spend some time with him as well. And I learned, that's when I learned that all this time I had been been mispronouncing his last name, Thomas, Tom, <laughs> Thomas Ricky, and he said, as in Ricky Bobby. And so I can remember that. And so hopefully everybody listening to this now, if they're in the scientific profession, waterfowl profession, it's Thomas Ricky. Uh, I was, I, for whatever reason, I was calling him Reiki. So he said he, he gets that a lot, but that's okay. Uh, but I do want to kind of talk about your uh, your path, I guess, to this, to your PhD, which is studying uh, studying waterfowl population dynamics, kind of for lack of a more specific description. I will say that the, the title in the proposal that you shared with me is Spatiotemporal Variation in Dabbling Duck Demographic Rates Across the Prairie Pothole Region. We're going to try to simplify some of that language as we go through this, but how did you, uh, so your PhD student currently at the University of, University of Nevada, Reno, so tell us about your path to to be, I guess, becoming a or wanting to become a quantitative ecologist as you were growing up, and now you are one, and you're studying duck ecology with some pretty massive data sets. What did that path look like to you, and what intrigued you? I mean, why quantitative ecology? Yeah, that's actually a question. I get a lot and it's always very interesting to answer because it's completely not what anyone throughout my childhood education would have expected from me actually. I'm dyslexic, I struggle with numbers, mixing them up, things like fractions are very difficult. I mix up my numerator, denominator, things like that. And so I actually was very scared of math, including statistics for most of my life until um, Dr. Thomas Rickey, who I just mentioned, actually, I started working for him and we started working on research and I was shown how especially quantitative ecology really incorporates these kind of two things I really enjoy, which is wildlife and ecology and that puzzle of the natural world, but also this puzzle of seeking patterns and seeking to, I guess, not generalize what's going on, but provide broader descriptors of things like a population, right? We're not describing every individual, but these broader trends. And so... Just working with him and going through this research, I just really fell in love with this kind of, I guess, puzzle um, that is quantitative ecology. And especially with waterfowl biology, like, geez, no one would have expected that. Like, I grew up in the middle of Las Vegas. I really like snakes and like desert tortoises and rattlesnakes. That's what got me into wildlife. Um, but I needed a job my sophomore year of undergrad. I emailed around and Dr. Jim Sedinger, who runs the Black Brant Project on the YK Delta or ran it, you know, let me enter some data. I thought it was a temporary position. And then I stayed in that lab for two years and started a PhD. Yeah, those professors are pretty good about identifying folks that have skill sets that are going to be useful to this to this profession. I mean, that's 
they've kind of made their their living identifying high quality candidates, high quality students, and you're obviously one of those. And um, I'm I'm glad they made that connection. I'm glad that they brought you into uh, into the field of waterfowl research. So you said tortoises and and snakes in Las Vegas in the desert of Nevada. Did you have was there sort of a a, a mentor, a a family connection, or somebody that helped you make that connection appreciation for the outdoors? Oh yeah, absolutely. My parents like it was just a really big thing. We'd skip church on Sunday most of the time and just go hiking. Yeah, your church was the out of doors. Exactly. It's And my mom especially really emphasized that to me growing up. This is a spiritual experience. Like we are like, look at all of this that exists. Let's look under a rock and like, oh my gosh, how much is just under one rock? But yeah, just constantly being outside with my parents, my sister, it really made me fall in love with being outside and just wanting to know what's out there and how does it work and all fit together. I wanted to, I'll take this opportunity to kind of ask you as, as sort of a junior and senior undergraduate, did you know at that time that you wanted to go on to graduate school? Because I get that occasionally people will ask what my career path was like. How did I know when I, uh, that I wanted to go on to graduate school? When did I know that? What, what was that like for you? Were, were you, did you have your sights set on graduate school and was there a particular taxonomic group that you thought you were going to work on before you were discovered by Dr. Sedinger? <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> how do I put this? I had been told very early on, especially in the like ecology, wildlife fields, probably a good idea to get a graduate degree. So I think about my sophomore year, which is also incidentally when I started doing some actual research, I was pretty like, okay, this is what I need to do in order to continue doing research. This thing I really enjoy and love that just makes me happy to do it. So I don't think immediately I knew I wanted to go to graduate school, but pretty quickly I did. And I don't think I ever thought like, oh, there's a specific taxa or system I want to work on. I'm a big believer in take the most interesting opportunity that's available to you at the time. And it turned out ducks were absolutely the most interesting opportunity available when I graduated. Yeah, well, there's a good reason for that. There is a ton of data collected for uh, across large spatial scales, large sections of North America over very long time periods. And whenever you combine all of those different characteristics, you get a data set that is super rich for answering questions about why populations change or how they change and why they change and so forth. And that, that kind of is a bit of a transition, I guess, to to talk about your research, one of the reasons we wanted to, we kind of identified you as a person we wanted to talk with, because there are lots of graduate students out there across North America, and we simply do not have enough spaces on our uh, podcast episode schedule to accommodate all of the graduate students doing important work on waterfowl and, and wetland conservation. I wish we did, but we don't. But the reason that you kind of stand out as among that group of, of graduate students is because you are a multi-year recipient of the Ducks Unlimited Bonnie Castle Fellowship in Wetland and Waterfowl Biology. Ducks Unlimited Canada, Ducks Unlimited Incorporated here in the States each year collaborate to hand out 
eight research fellowships to graduate students conducting work on wetlands and waterfowl in various parts of North America. And you were the two-time recipient of that. So we want to highlight your research. And so this is where I turn it over to you and, and, and ask you again, like, like this, those rich data sets, as a, as a quantitative ecologist, how exciting was that to learn about the massive scale and space and time at which all these data were collected? Oh, my gosh. Like I, when I found out about it, like I nearly jumped out of my seat. It was just like, oh my gosh, look at all these A, questions we can answer, but also all these modeling techniques we could potentially apply and have the modeling techniques kind of work. Because just with a lot of statistical models, not having a big enough sample size, even if all the math's correct, you might not really get an answer to your question just because small sample size, you probably have a lot of uncertainty around the estimates of whatever we call them parameters that we're trying to estimate. So for me, it's like a survival rate or harvest mortality. And so just knowing that this intensely rich multi-species, multi-year, just landscape continental level scale of a data set existed was just insane. And the first thing I did was think of a million and one questions that I have not gotten to yet. Yeah. And I think the thing that's really cool is that some of the data that you use is provided by hunters, like in terms of band recoveries, those types of things. The other thing is that these other data sets, like the the population data from the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey, the BPOP survey is it's it's in some cases known. That's a data set produced every year, and that is of great interest to waterfowl hunters. We at Ducks Unlimited make a big deal out of that, and it's going to be released in August of this year, and we're going to be publicizing it, and we're going to be covering it. And hunters look forward to that number. They look forward to an understanding or a description of habitat conditions. All of the things that excite waterfowl hunters sort of on the surface about these things, these pieces of data are the exact same things that you go in depth with to answer some of these questions about what's happening with waterfowl populations, right? I mean, that's what connects us all. Oh, absolutely. And I do really, yeah, you said it perfectly, Mike, hunters contribute so much to these enormously rich, important data sets. So I always try and really shout out, like, this is one of the largest public science data sets in the world that exists. And it's so stinking cool. Like, Yeah, yeah. So many other avian ecologists are really jealous of the, the wealth of data that we have in, in waterfowl. And we can continue to be thankful for that, that we have access to it. Helps us helps us learn a lot. You know, the other thing that, that kind of stood out to me, I was recalling uh, whenever we were in Alaska, it, we found, I don't remember, I guess it was a white front nest. Uh, you and Thomas and I were walking along the first day that we got there and we encountered a white front uh, a nesting white front and she got off the nest and we went over and looked at the eggs and two were brown or sort of brownish red and the other was was white or maybe it was it was two in one of one or the other kind of situation but your mind you started asking Thomas about why that is and then he was providing the description and I have a video of this and I'll see if I can we're going to try to post some of this at some point but I remember your mind almost immediately went to like trying to explain that like we could probably model can we model the uncertainty in sort of the the laying sequence of those and so that was the that was the moment that I realized wow Maddie is like she her mind is quantitatively wired I mean 
What I'd say is I am fortunate enough to have received an immense statistical education at this point. But I mean, I think those are really interesting and important questions in terms of, okay, so we can maybe figure out something like lane order by looking at how much staining is on the egg. But it's it's nature, it's ecology. There's a lot of messiness that goes on and it's just fascinating to try and figure out how correct are we about something, some assumption, you know? Yeah. And, and the other really neat thing about it is I guarantee you, you could take every waterfowl hunter in North America and plop them there on the tundra with us and show them that that same thing we were observing and they would be fascinated by it. They would say, oh my gosh, that is so cool. Now, they may not immediately go to trying to figure out how to model the uncertainty around our assignment of, of laying sequence, but uh, just the ecology of these birds, what they go through, through the, the the migrations they make and how we marvel at them, uh, waterfowl hunters just are, are just like us in in being fascinated by what these birds are doing and the things that show up and and you know how we try to understand them. So, I, I guess I will I'll move on here, Maddie, to to talk a bit about your your research. I described the title, I mentioned the title earlier: spatiotemporal variation in dabbling duck demographic rates across the prairie pothole region. So, hopefully, everybody in the audience will know what the prairie pothole region is. But I'm going to ask you to I'm going to ask you to kind of decipher that the the first part of that when you say. Sp- spatiotemporal variation in, in demographic rates. Translate all that for us. What is, what's the basic question or set of questions that you're answering with your research? Yeah. So demographic rates are things like, especially for dabbling ducks, things like survival or harvest mortality or um, reproductive rates. All I'm interested in is looking at how do those rates change across space and change across time in conjunction. So is one site in the northwest of the PPR doing a whole lot better than some site in the southeast? And do those sites change in the same way over years or differently? For instance, does that site in the northwest, maybe the survival increases over the years. It started maybe pretty high and it just kept getting higher. And then in the south um, southeast, did that survival rate, maybe it started really high, but the trend is different. Maybe there's a slight decrease over time. And so it's questions like that. Just how does it these rates vary across both space and time? And do they all do the same thing? Do they do different things? And why? you and I have both sort of talked about the different scales at which we can ask these questions about why is there variation in some of these different vital rates, but why is that important for us from a management perspective? Let's talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for management, we can think, or at least I think one of the biggest helps in trying to understand variation is this kind of idea of forecasting, just predicting if we have a really bad year, there's no ponds on the landscape this year, what will our duck populations do next year? And how might that differ across this really big landscape? So it's important in that sense. It's also really important to know Maybe our kind of, you know, quote unquote, subpopulations of ducks, again, across a really broad landscape, do they react differently 
to environmental conditions when they change. So say we have a uniform across the landscape, ponds decrease all the same amount. Do ducks in, say, one area do better than others? They produce, we could say, more babies one than this other population, even though ponds decrease the same amount at both sites. So knowing that is really important for management and just having this kind of I guess, more specific understanding of how the population works in this specific area. Um, And to get at this kind of more pure ecology question, something I'm really interested in is concepts of life history, which is a big fancy ecology term. But, you know, just to vaguely describe it, it's things like how long will a duck live? How many babies will it have? How often does it reproduce? Does it reproduce every year or every other year? Um, Things like that. Even migratory behavior and habitat use can factor into life histories. And I'm really interested in it because it gives us a way to generalize certain things to species we might not have as much data for and just don't know as much about. And so... I guess when looking at the spatiotemporal variation, we can also look at this variation for different species and say, okay, we know these two different species have different life histories. Can we predict out to species we have less data for, less knowledge about, and then manage those species better? That's a great segue to a break because we're going to take a break here. And then when we come back, I want to ask you a little bit more about that. You're studying different species uh, in your research. And then I think we'll close out the discussion about your research. And then we'll get to uh, you and I reflecting on on the experience we had on the, uh, the YK Delta. So stay with us, everyone. We'll be right back. Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina ProPlan, after these messages. Welcome back, everyone. I am here with Maddie Lohman, a PhD student at the University of Nevada, Reno. We are discussing her research, uh, studying duck ecology, broadly stated, specifically trying to f- help us figure out why duck populations, why the, like their survival rates, their harvest rates sort of change and, and whether they change at different rates across the, the landscape of the prairie pothole region. Now, Maddie, you were telling me about this idea of life history and how that life, those life history traits, survival rates, um, age at first breeding, migratory strategies, those types of things can vary uh, among species. And I know that you are studying different species in this in this research. So tell us about that and why those species. Yeah. Um, so I study blue-winged teal, mallards, and uh, northern pintail. And in addition to just, I think they're very charismatic species. They're really helpful for my research um, because they form this kind of life history gradient of dabbling ducks. And what I mean by that is this kind of concept of we have faster and slower life histories. Blue-winged teal don't tend to live super long. They reproduce with a lot of eggs every single year until they die in general. And then we go over to, say, northern pintails, and they're surviving 
a little bit longer. They might not even breed every year and they're producing fewer eggs than say a teal at every reproductive attempt. And then mallards fall somewhere in the middle. And while this gradient isn't maybe as dramatic as say a mouse versus an elephant in terms of this kind of fast to slow continuum, we are able within this kind of grouping of species dabbling decks to look at this gradient and say, how does variation in demographic rates and responses to the environment differ between these species? And how might these species' different life histories play into that? And that's important as you were kind of talking about in helping us figure out if if there are if there's one species or maybe several species that can serve can serve as sort of a useful substitute or proxy for others for ones for which we may not have a lot of data in some cases. We're trying to figure out if there's if like if yeah, if we can how how uniform our the, the returns or the benefits of our management actions or conservation actions or harvest management might be across different species. Is that is that about right? Like from a relevant standpoint? Yeah, exactly. You know, unfortunately, we can't collect a ton of data all the time on every different species. Some are harder than others. And yeah, it's not 100% perfect, but it allows us to manage these species without data a lot better and gauge whether it works or not so much better. Yeah, you know, Maddie, we've already talked about some of the key data sets that you're using. Um, how about tell us where you are in this research, uh, at, like in terms of completing your degree? How much longer do you have to go? Are there any preliminary find? Well, let's just. Uh, I'm really bad about asking a lot of questions at once. So, how far along are you, and how much longer do you have? I have uh, completed four years of my PhD. I have two years left. I'm really fortunate to have received a few different fellowships to fund that. And I'm also working on a master's degree in statistics concurrently. So I'm, I'm really taking my time uh, with completing the degree. And, and in terms of the research, any, anything that has stood out, I, I don't want to ask you to to reveal a whole lot of preliminary information, preliminary results, because as we've said on previous episodes, we kind of like to stay true to the peer review process and make sure the information that we're sharing at, at any specific level is has gone through that proper vetting. But any interesting tidbits or things that you have found particularly, I don't know, exciting so far? So many things. But again, I'm trying to think <laughs> of how to generalize this because peer review is very important mm-hmm. to me. I'd say one really cool thing is that we do for all these species actually do find spatial variation, particularly in survival rates. Um, And it's very interesting because I also break up each species into age and sex class. So adult males, adult females, and then juvenile males, juvenile females. And it's really interesting to see, especially how these spatial patterns differ for all these different age and sex classes. I'd also say there's a tremendous amount of variation in all the demographic rates I study across time, which is really interesting to see what periods are particularly good for these populations and where are they not doing as well. And then trying to compare, say, are males doing a lot better in this time period, but females are maybe struggling? And why is that? 
And that also kind of brings me to another interesting preliminary result I've been working on quite a bit lately is that we find that males and females, well, like kind of broadly, uh, demographic rates kind of align in terms of they'll go up you know, around the same time, and then they'll decline around the same time. We do see differences in both space and time. When, how do I put it? The variation between males and females is not quite the same. It's not one-to-one. And trying to understand why that is and what the ecological dynamics are to generate those patterns is really interesting. Well, I, I look forward to seeing the rest of your research, the results of your of your research. Um, and so continue on with that. We were super excited to have supported your research as a Ducks Unlimited fellows, uh, fellow. Uh, we were honored to have you uh, sort of represent our organization. So thank you for that. Thank you, guys. Oh yeah, Shoot. oh yeah. Is that is that we're we're happy to have the opportunity to do that, and we're um, it's just one small way in in which in which we can continue to contribute uh, to waterfowl research and help help support the next generation of waterfowl scientists. Uh, sort of in that vein, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about our fun adventure in the Yukon Delta because that was another one of these uh, long-term research project up there right out on the edge of the Bering Sea on the, the shores of the Tataco River. And uh, you and I and others were there as part of a little research group that the research, there's like a research, core research team that had been there for 30 or 40 days before we got there. And and we're going to try to get that that like core research team together on a future episode. I was talking with one of the members of that that team by text, I guess, a few weeks ago and floated the idea. And uh, it was Caroline, Caroline Blommel. And, and she said, absolutely, would love to do that. So I think I guess the rest of that crew is still up there as of right now. This is late July. They're still there. Uh, it's a long term Black Brant research site. And it was my first time to have ever been there. I think, Maddie, it was your first time to have kind of ever been out on a waterfowl research site, right? You had told me that you had done a lot of work or uh, work in the desert in sort of drier environments, but in terms of sort of a wetland landscape, was that the first major experience of yours? I'd say major one, yeah. I've definitely gone, you know, duck banding and things like that, but not for as long as a period and not. I think very few sites can replicate how intense that um, those field conditions are. But yeah, it was my first like big trip to go work with the geese and the waterfowl. It was very exciting. And you and I and, and Thomas met one another at the Anchorage airport. And from there, we went to Bethel. And from Bethel, we went to Chivac. From Chivac, we took a four-hour, well, actually, it was more like a seven or eight-hour boat ride from Chivac out to the field site. And we almost got stuck one time. And it was, I, that was that was an experience in itself that, you know, it's a bit of anxiety um, getting there and having to, because we were the first ones to get the boats, get the boat and fire up the yeah. motor. And I was shocked that the boat or that the motor started as easily as it did, especially after we realized that the little dipstick had been pulled out and it was low on oil. And, you know, those types of remote situations, remote field camps always bring with them an incredible amount of logistical challenges. And so there we were, the first ones to get uh, to, to use the motor in a year. And I'll be honest, I was 
I was surprised that it started up as easily as it did, but it did. We eventually got there. Um, we had a wonderful time. Share with the the audience some of your favorite memories, some of the most remarkable observations, things you didn't expect, or or just what was that like for you? Oh my gosh! Big question, I know. <laughs> yeah, huge question. Just everything was absolutely remarkable. Um, I guess just, you know, that kind of coming in like seven hours on a river on a small boat to get to camp was like 9 p.m., just exhausted. And then just this absolutely gorgeous and completely, to me at least, novel landscape that I've never seen anything like this coastal tundra. My God, like it was just amazing and jaw-dropping how big these rivers are. You know, I'm from... I'm definitely from Nevada, you know, the Truckee's pretty big to me. And then I see these rivers and it's like, oh my gosh, I've never seen a river this big. And then I guess just like the diversity, especially of like avian life right there was just, I've never seen so many like sandhill cranes in one place before. Just like, you know, 15 hanging out all together. Mike, just so cool. And then, I don't know, I'm trying to think of all the interesting memories, but there's so many. Yeah, because you were up there, you and Thomas were there for like two weeks, two, or was it closer to three weeks? I was there for about eight days, I think. I think it was just over two weeks we were at camp. And I remember emailing Thomas afterwards, and he said his feet were still recovering uh, several days after he had gotten back. I don't know. Did his feet get in pretty bad shape by the time things were over? Not that he told me, but <laughs> I imagine just wet feet yeah. all day, every day. That's That probably is a little bit rough. Yeah. Walking around in waiter, yeah, just waiters and waiter boots all day is also probably not you know, there's not a lot of arch support there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what was the coolest bird for you? Like we saw everything from emperor geese to spectacled eiders, common eiders. Uh, somebody had, somebody saw a king eider. I don't know if you saw that, if you were part of that group. You you, you saw the king eider? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, okay. I, so I have the answer then probably, right? Yeah, no, I was about to say <laughs> the eiders were definitely the, yeah. Oh my gosh. I love eiders. They're like just gorgeous. And then the king, oh my gosh. Yes. All right. So just, outside of the king eider, what was your favorite uh, bird species or the most surprising or the the, you know, the one that you remember most outside of the king? Honestly, maybe it's a little bit of a silly answer, but the black rat, just because I had worked on the project remotely for a number of years and then just being able to actually go there and go up and see them and work with them was just amazing. They also really are good parents and get very upset with you when you go near their nest. So the amount of just getting beat on the head and back with wings, you know, that really reinforces that bird in my memory. Did you have an opportunity to look at the photos and videos that I shared with y'all? Yeah, they were amazing. Yeah, and, and You're so, a great photographer. Well, so I don't know about that, but my point in saying that was that, that we're going to try to get those out on some of our social me- social media platforms here in a, in a little while. I don't know when this episode is going to air, but sometime this fall, we're going to try to get some of that footage out there and some of those photos for people. But they are, they are just incredibly remarkable birds. And I would share that with you that, um, that yeah, just I was stunned at how approachable 
those birds were on the nest. I mean, that we have some video of the researchers having to kind of forcibly move the hens off the nest to get to the eggs and collect the measurements from the eggs. And just wonderful video demonstrating the parenting that you talked about. But that entire landscape, and I don't know, it's the, the birds that were nesting there. And there's some, there's some differences from one bird to the next, but there's a large number of birds there that just didn't seem to mind being very close to you. I had a, a hen pintail nesting 15 feet from my tent in camp. I'd wake up in the morning and we'd have a pair of cackling geese walking through the camp. Uh, we had a hen long-tailed duck nesting 30 meters from from a tent. We had, what were they, western sandpipers. We had dunlins. We had, of course, the arctic terns. Can't forget about them, right? I was about to mention, <laughs> they attacked you every time you went to your tent, right? Yeah, yeah I know. We kind of had a running, had a thing as soon as I would head in that direction. Here he comes, he would, or she, whichever, would get up off the nest, come right towards me, and it's just like, kind of made a game of it by the end of it, or made sort of a, a, a friendship of it, I guess I should say. But it was, it, it is, was, it is a wonderful landscape, was a wonderful experience for me. I know it was you as well. Uh, you actually, as I said, stuck around a little bit longer and were able to spend some more time with the, with the goslings. Talk about that. How cool was that? Oh my gosh. You know, it's always fun to have like baby birds in hand, but like these goslings were just the cutest fluff balls. I would say though, the parents got more aggressive as it got closer to hatch. And then especially once they had goslings, they were very, rightfully so. Yeah. I'll put it, that out there, <laughs> rightfully so, but very unhappy with me. Um, so just trying to yeah, manage these goslings, trying to scramble out from under my clipboard I put on top of the nest while I have one in hand. Dad's coming from the air, mom's coming from the ground. At one point, I had a turn come and peck my head at the same time. <laughs> it was a phenomenal experience, but definitely I got good at managing multiple things. It was full-on attack mode, yeah. And and I guess just to provide some background to folks, what y'all were doing is web tagging the, the goslings at that point. And the, the thing that I will say, I think, I would hope people understand this to be the case for any research that we talk about. If it's conducted, well, that, that is conducted by by universities, state, or federal researchers, it's all done under the guidance of approved research permits, animal care, and use permits. And so this is not just a group of people willy-nilly going out there and playing around with duck nests There's, or, God, or goose nests. There's a, a very rigorous uh, sort of permitting and and, and use and research review protocols that all of these things have to go through. And so you in particular, as you were talking about, were, were attaching web tags to the goslings as they hatched. And, and the hatching in, gos in geese is very synchronous. It happens much more so than, than ducks because of that compressed breeding season. How, like, how fast pace was that week because the day that I left, that Carolyn and I and I left, was the first hatched nest that was being monitored. But I imagine over the next two, three, five days, things the the number of nests that started hatching just exploded. Oh yeah, there was definitely it was a quick buildup. There were a lot of long hours pulled, a lot of miles walked, a lot of nests visited to just make sure, at the very least, we could say this nest is hatched and here's the date it hatched. If not, you know, 
the primary goal being trying to get those web tags on Gosling so we can, you know, track them to, uh, you know, becoming juveniles and then banding them. But uh, yeah, it was so quick and exhausting. We'll talk more about that research if we get Jordan and Caroline and uh, and others on on an episode here later this fall. Uh, did the, uh, just sort of a side question here, did the waiters continue, the new waiters that you were left with by Caroline when she had to leave, did they continue to perform as good for the rest of your time as it sounded like they were going to whenever you first tried those things on? Oh, I think that absolutely. It was amazing. <laughs> I was I was cruising across the colony. It was wonderful. Yeah. It's kind of the backstory there is that you had uh, a pair of waders that didn't fit you all that well. No. They were the the molded boot. Uh, the, ideally, in those kind of situations, you want the stocking foot waders with a good hiking boot or, or fishing boot or something to go over it so that your foot is not pulling out of the boot whenever you get stuck in the mud because it is some in some places some very deep you know deltaic mud like we're talking up to the up to the knee in some places uh and if you it, it yeah you had a couple of instances where you got stuck in the mud it, like i was telling you Anybody that spends enough time in the marsh is going to find themselves in that situation. But with as much walking as we all had to do, yeah, that became that became a huge pain for you. And then when you were at, able to finally try on those waders of Caroline's and they fit, I have video of that also. And that's one of my favorite videos of your reaction and your excitement. And so that was awesome. Uh, I'm glad it worked out. Yeah, it was perfect. Uh it was, sorry, I cannot <laughs> stop going on about it. It was amazing to have waiters that fit me. Yeah, that's very important, for, very important takeaway. Well, let's say anything else uh, before we wrap up, anything else to share, like memory-wise from our trip to the to uh, the Yukon Delta? I'm trying to think. There's so many memories, but I think especially just sitting in the weather port with everyone, you know. I knew you were going to uh, say that. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> everyone there is just so phenomenally intelligent and kind and just charismatic. And it was just so fun to, you know, play cards and drink hot chocolate or talk about an extremely silly book or things yeah. like that with people who are just fun to talk with. Yeah, I'll give a quick shout out by first name only because I don't have all their last name last names here with me. But uh, Jordan, Caroline, Laura, Jacob, Lydia, and of course, Thomas was there as well. You were there. I got everybody, right? Yep, I think so. Okay. And and so everybody except you and Thomas are the ones that we're going to try to get on a, a subsequent episode. Talk about some stories. They're going to have some. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. Uh, the sauna. You know, this, there's a whole backstory on the sauna as well. We'll explain that in a subsequent episode. But did y'all make much progress in rebuilding the sauna before y'all left? They were almost done, but I think there was, I wasn't quite sure, but there was a plywood shortage by the time oh, yeah. we left. Yeah. But they were, it was very, very close. I think they probably have a sauna now. Okay. Yeah. And so the story on the, I just, I feel like I probably need to clarify that. <laughs> the reason for a sauna is because there's no running water. There's no, uh, you know, no indoor toilet or anything of that nature. Folks are out there for, well, all summer without running water, they have to, to bring in their their potable water, drinkable water by boat. And the sauna, my understanding, is sort of the the way, the closest thing to sort of a of a of a shower that folks can get 
uh, where you go into the sauna, you get all hot, and then you jump into the river and then kind of wash off there and then get back in the sauna and, and warm back up. That was my understanding of the protocol. And what and they had, for the longest time, had a sauna that they would construct or rebuild every summer. And that would be one of the little, quote, luxuries, if you can call it that, given the primitive nature of what that sauna was, uh, that, that they would have. And... Uh, because there was no shower, they people were not able not able to shower there. And last year, the tropical well, not a tropical storm, but a typhoon that came through uh, in September washed away all of the all the plywood and all of the uh, all the stuff that that they used for that that sauna in past year. So they were in a rebuilding mode. Did I get all that right? I think so. That sounds correct. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that some more with the group. But uh, anyway, that was a uh, one of, another one of the things that you have to deal with in those remote locations. Uh, Maddie, I think that's probably, oh, I, that's what I, one last thing to do is to give you an opportunity to acknowledge your research partners and, and the folks that kind of make all this possible for you. And then we'll, then we'll wrap up. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously Ducks Unlimited. And then I'm also fortunately like extremely grateful to be a recipient of NSF's uh, graduate research fellowship programs, fellowships that they give out. And those are my primary funders. Uh, but also, you know, my advisor, Dr. Perry Williams, uh, Dr. Paul Hurtado, Dr. Thomas Rickey, Dr. Jim Sattinger be remiss to not mention them. Yeah, and then I always like to um, say a thanks to everybody that has collected the data that you've used. I know you also echo that. We're talking about everybody from the Fish and Wildlife Service, Canadian Wildlife Service, state agency folks, provincial agency folks that contribute to those surveys, waterfowl hunters, uh, waterfowl banders, anybody involved in those data sets. Uh, they always get a big shout out for for their participation for making all of this possible. Yeah, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal effort and the results are absolutely stunning. Yeah, thank you, Mike, for mentioning that. Yeah. Maddie, it's been great having you on here. We appreciate, as I said before, you being a wonderful ambassador of Ducks Unlimited Science and of Science for North American Waterfowl. I thoroughly enjoyed getting to spend a week plus with you and and that was um yeah I'm, I'm glad I had that opportunity and we'll look forward to catching up with you I guess early next year yeah as well yeah so thanks for being here with us thank you a very special thanks to our guest on today's episode Maddie Lohman a PhD student at the University of Nevada Reno studying duck demographics and how they vary across that very important landscape of the prairie pothole region. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, who does a fantastic job with these episodes. And we thank you, the listener, for your time and support of the podcast. And we thank you for your commitment to wetlands, conservation, and waterfowl science. Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned.